fiscal review, um, which is due. So if you didn't do the first one, make sure you're doing the second two. Uh, if you did the first one and you're swamped with other classes this week, you can skip this one and do the third. But of course, if you get the first two done, don't have to worry about the third one. If you, as long as you're happy with your grades on the first two, that is. So you can completely skip the third one, which is towards the end of the semester, and that'll save you a little bit there. Uh, everything else coming up is a little bit later on. There will be a, a third solar observation I'll be asking for, which might be somewhere in there that I haven't put in yet. I have to work out exactly what date that's going to be. But the homework that I gave out last time is due right now. I have it scheduled for due the 2nd of November and the exam for the 9th. So those are tentative based on how everything goes, but we should be, we're, we're right now we're right on track for what we should be. We're supposed to be working on chapter 17 through 19 this week, which is where we are. So we're actually doing pretty good and set up on that. We should be pretty much on pace for the rest of the semester. Uh, the only other thing is uh, the review quizzes. Don't forget those. They're not up there yet. They will be up later this week. I have all the questions and I will be putting those up later. Yeah. Did I put the wrong? 18th is still right. Then it would be the first and the eighth. Thank you. Don't want to come in on Friday? <laughs> Thank you. First and the eighth then. Yeah, I can get you a copy in a second. So let me change those on here. Otherwise, I will do that again next time. First and the eighth then. So. Yeah, so it'd be on Thursday just like the previous ones and with exam three we'll do the same thing with the with the lab right at, right afterwards. So um, on this on the exam I did give uh, you've gotten those back or I just gave those back. Uh, you know what? I you have to remind me I'll have to get you a copy because I did not bring it. I have them on a separate file, so I will do my best to remember to bring that Thursday for you. <laughs> um, on the exam, the biggest thing that I saw, I did add a few points. So if you look at your grade here and you look at your grade on two, D2L, they won't match. There's about a four to five point difference. So I did add a few points, not near as much as I did last time. But, and the next one will probably be even less. So the biggest thing that I saw is make sure that you're using the review sheets that I gave you, those key point sheets. Make sure, you, I think if I counted right, I only saw four people using them during the exam. Where yeah. Do do? You can get those, I, have, I set that up here to show. So if you go, you go up on D2L, go into the class, which is this one. In your case, it'll be the only astronomy class uh, showing there. And if you go into content, we're working on lessons seven through nine right now. So if you look, let me just, if you go down on the side, it'll show lesson seven. And it's the review materials. So key points, chapter 17, 18, and 19. If you just click on those, it'll come up directly and you can click to download it. Where is it? I think you can actually click to download from the previous one. Why does that say chapter 9? I'll have to check that one. Um, and just click, where is it? Download. And you can just download the file to your computer and print it out. So you have to download each one of them. You have to download each one. There's seven, there, there, this is going to be 17, 18. There's actually, it's going to be 17 through 22. So you're going to have a lot, a lot that you're going to be able to have for the third exam. So you can just print those out. I mean, I'd recommend doing it now. They're all up there. I have everything for this exam already up there except for the quizzes. So you can just, you can print those out. They're, the nice thing is these aren't in color or anything, so they're not, and they're just regular text files, so they're not very ink intensive at least in terms of printing them out. 
but you're allowed to write any other notes you want on them. So you can have that there for the exam and that would be hopefully be a help because I, I didn't actually judge, I didn't mark who I saw using them, but my thought was the couple people that I recognized using them did have much higher grades. And some of the people that I knew weren't using them had much lower grades. So it doesn't mean it would change or it's going to bring your grade up from a low grade up to a 90% or something, but I don't think, they're certainly not going to hurt you and they're a good focus for when you're studying. So right now if you just go into lessons 7, 8, and 9, there's going to be in this case, it's a big one because there's six of them, but some of those are relative. One of them, I know one of them is only one page long, so relatively short. And you can just print those out, and anything you want to write on them, you can have those with you for the exam. So I would print them out now, have them with you, at least, if nothing else, at least you have those there. It might jog your memory about some term that you needed that didn't come up when you were looking at the, at the exam. So definitely use those because I really think it'll... Now, having that there is just that little bit of confidence, too, that you might be able to remember something that you didn't otherwise. All right. So, otherwise, I said when you look at the grades there, uh, there is a difference. And the other reminder is don't go shred or burn your exams yet because I do use those for the final. I will take the multiple choice questions for a big chunk of the final will come right from those exams. So I want you to focus on those studying for the uh, material. And if things work out well, I'll hopefully be able to have some time the last week to review and go over anything. I recommend that you go and look through and find, see what answers you can find. But I'll be happy to go over them towards the end of the class. All right, questions? All right, well, let's go ahead and get started then. Uh, we have our picture, first of all, here, uh, which is actually an image of Jupiter. And if you've seen pictures of Jupiter before, this might not look much like what you're used to seeing for Jupiter. This is actually an ultraviolet image taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Some of the structures we see are the same. You can see the bands, but the coloring, when we look in the ultraviolet, it's always going to be false color, right? Because we can't see ultraviolet light. It doesn't have any meaning to say what color of ultraviolet light is it. We can look at different wavelengths, but unlike visible light where we have our red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet, we don't have that in the ultraviolet. It's simply that these are all much shorter wavelengths and then they're color coded to do that. Now the brightness does show you something. The lighter colored the image, the brighter it is, means that it's more intense in the ultraviolet. A darker portion of this means that it's less intense. So in this case, the polar regions up here and here of Jupiter are not giving off as much ultraviolet. This other spot over here, this dark spot over here, if this was a visible light image, that would be bright red. That's the great red spot of Jupiter you may have heard of. That's a, that's a gigantic storm. Looks very bright in the visible and very red, but it's not emitting a lot of ultraviolet light. And astronomers use these. You look at other wavelengths to get that full picture. Right? When we study a planet, we study a star, we study a galaxy, if we look at it only in visible light, we only get part of the picture. We don't get the entire picture of what that is about. And we'll look at that again when we start looking at galaxies. Galaxies, we can take a picture of it in visible light. It can look like a nice pretty galaxy. We can look at it in radio waves. And it may have all sorts of odd lobes of material going out. It's telling us more about the structure and what's going on. So we only get a partial picture when we look just at one kind of light. So this is just an example. Uh, this was taken by Hubble. Um, 
couple of years ago, I think this was back in 2015, I don't think, uh, 2017, so last year image. Hubble, if you've read about it, is having some issues right now with its gyroscopes. It had, had six, I think it was six gyroscopes it normally has. Three of them have already failed, so it only has three that are working. It minimally needs three to really get the great science that it's used to. So there, the backup one was giving all sorts of other issues when one, of them, when one was failing. So you know, it's the point where another one or two fail and it's going to be very difficult to get almost anything out of there. But one more completely fails and Hubble won't be able to do much uh, of the detailed, accurate, more accurate science to be able to keep it positioned. The gyroscopes were put up in about 10 years ago when the last shuttle mission went up to service uh, the service Hubble, Hubble went up there, replaced all the gyroscopes, but as with anything else, things wear out over time. And we have to be, you know, be fair, Hubble is now pushing, what is it, 28 years up there? It was a 15-year mission originally. It was hoping to get 15 years out of it. We've gotten 28. So we've almost doubled its life, its expected lifespan. We've gotten more than double out of it. So hopefully it'll go for another 5, 10 years until the new James Webb gets up there. But it is something that, you know, eventually it's going to be, be done. All right. Questions? Yes? Okay, I have to go. I saw that when I clicked. I'll have to go check that one. Were the other ones okay? Okay. I will double check that. If it's not fixed, remind me. I'll try to fix it this afternoon. All right. Other questions? Otherwise, we're going to go back to chapter 17. We've got a few chapters to get through today. Uh, let's see. We were just finishing up. I think I just talked about Let me go back to brown dwarf stars just as a review here. I'm pretty sure that's where we, from current, there we go. Pretty much that's about where we had ended up last time. We had been looking at the different, some of the different types of stars and the brown dwarfs were one of those that we call a, what are really called failed stars. They never become hot enough for those nuclear reactions, fusing hydrogen into helium. That's really what defines a star. And we try to come up with definitions, you know, what do we mean by a star? Because stars vary in size from really, really massive stars that are 100 times the mass of our sun down to tiny things that are only, you know, less than, less than one-tenth the mass of our sun. That's the stars, but you know, what's, what happens to something a little bit less than that? Where do you define the cutoff? What is a star and what isn't a star? So we cut that off, we, we make the definition be at this 0.075 solar masses, that means that it's just not going to be, it's just going to be hot enough at this size, the core will just get hot enough to ignite nuclear reactions, just barely. Anything less than this and the star fails. It never becomes an actual star because it can't undergo nuclear reactions. However, it can fuse not hydrogen but deuterium and if you remember the proton-proton chain from the sun, deuterium was the result of the first stage of it, but some of it formed in the early universe. So there is a little bit of deuterium around in stars. And these stars, it fuses at a much lower temperature, only needs a million or two million degrees. Still really hot, right? But compared to the temperatures that we need to fuse hydrogen, it's a fraction of that. So these stars are actually able to fuse deuterium. They do have some slight energy source. 
but not, not able to fuse the others. If you get that mass down low enough, less than about 13 Jupiter masses, now you're not even getting hot enough to fuse deuterium. So it's no longer possible and then we classify anything there as a planet. So Jupiter is very definitely in the planet range. There is no, you know, it's not just close, you need 12 more Jupiters worth of material to put together and squeeze into Jupiter to make it a brown dwarf star. And then you need a lot more than that to get it up to actually being a star. So sometimes people will call Jupiter a failed star, it's really not, it's nowhere close to it being anything like that. It is definitely in the realm of the planets. If it was 12 times more massive than it is, then it would be close. Then it would be getting to that border between a planet and a star. So in terms of some definitions are relatively irregular, these ones are really set for what we mean by the difference between the border between a star and a brown dwarf and between a brown dwarf and a planet. There's a very distinct and physical reason that's going on there. Now, we wanted to look, this is where we finished up last time, what I wanted to look here was at the sizes. And I'm actually going to do a video clip here in just a minute uh, to show this, but this is actually looking at various different planets and then going through the size scales. I'm not going to go through that because I have a video clip which shows it a little better than my uh, still photo here. But what we want to look at is that there are stars come in a big variety of sizes. Masses too, but also size, how big they actually are. If we look here, uh, where are we? There's Jupiter. There's Jupiter on this one in slide three. Jupiter's that big, but there's actually a relatively small star that's only a few times Jupiter's size in terms of diameter. Massive, it's much more massive, but in terms of size it isn't that different in terms of that. There are also stars when we get to our sun, which is the one next to it, our sun is there and compared to our sun, which is off the scale on even this next one, these other stars, which again each lowest star starts at the bottom here, some of these stars are incredibly gigantic compared to our sun. So they're not just a little bit bigger, they're not just five or ten times or twenty times bigger, there are stars that are hundreds or thousands of times the diameter of our own sun. So what we think is our, of our sun is very big, these things are tremendous. And that's why I want to go ahead aside and show you, instead of just going through these, I'm going to go ahead and do it through the video clip and let me play that and then we'll come back and talk about it a little bit more. Um, leave this on if I'm not doing the video, I'm not doing any audio. So this does a little bit of talking about the different sizes and what it does is it's going to start off with something big-ish. It's going to start with our moon and then it just scales up and keeps looking. Everything is to scale here starting with our moon as being that size. So Mercury's a little bit bigger, we're working within the solar system, there's Mars, there's Venus, there's our Earth coming into view. And again that gives you a little bit of an idea of the relative size and there's a big jump. You go from something like Earth, a big, pla big, big, pl big planet, to things like Neptune, Saturn, Jupiter. Earth is very, very tiny. And then you jump from Jupiter to the Sun. Jupiter is minuscule compared to the Sun, but now we want to see the Sun is even small compared to many of these other stars. There it is shrinking down as we start to look at giant stars. And again, just a red giant star, there's our poor little Sun there kind of disappearing as we look at just these red giant stars and we're not up to the biggest ones. We're getting up to supergiant stars and you can get a hint of what might be coming there. Hypergiants in the blue but the red ones are even bigger. 
Antares is a red supergiant, would fill the entire inner solar system. And then there is this one. This is VY Canis Majoris, the largest known star. This would go out to about the orbit of Saturn in our solar system. So they give you a little calculation here to kind of show how big, to compare how big this is. There's our poor little Earth. It's just a dot. You can't even see the curvature of that. And diameter of 2.8 billion kilometers. So how can we understand that? Well, if we compare it with a passenger airplane traveling at 900 kilometers per hour, it's going to take you 1,100 years just to go around that. Traveling constantly, that's how big this thing is. That would be just to travel around that, you know, circumnavigate that star would be that, would be take you that long traveling in a relatively fast jet. So, again, this thing goes through all the other stuff. I'm not going through all the other sizes right now. We'll look at some of the others uh, there. So, okay. So I want to show that, and I think that does a little bit better than just my little slides there. Um, than just showing the pictures here, showing the still pictures, you kind of get a better view of how massively large, because you don't get that jump in between each set of slides here, even though this star here is the same, these two are the same, and that's the same VY Canis Majoris. That's the one, 11, over a thousand years to just to cir- circumnavigate it once, just to travel around it once in a relatively fast, object. You know, not just walking around it, not doing anything else, but just taking that, just flying around it relatively quickly. It's going to take you that long. So our sun isn't the smallest star, not, not anything close. There are a lot of stars significantly smaller than our sun, which those are the class M stars, those tiny stars in here. But there are also stars that are many, many times larger than our sun as well. So when we classify them, we, ha- we actually divide the classes. We looked at the temperature classes before, the O, B, A, F, G, K, M. So we looked at one way we can classify stars. But we also look at the difference here in terms of the looking at the spectral lines. We can also classify them by luminosity. So it's a two-dimensional classification. You classify by temperature, hotter stars and cooler stars. That's the spectral classes that we went through last time, but we can also split them up because you can have a star at the temperature of our sun, which could be just like our sun. That's actually a dwarf star, class five. That's where our sun fits in. So our sun is a G star, G telling you the temperature, but it's also a five, meaning that it's the smallest that you're going to get of those types of stars. You can also go up to larger stars and Mainly for this, for the class, I don't worry about two and four. They're kind of in between. But one, three, and five are the big ones. So class five here are the dwarfs. Class three are the giants. And class one are the supergiants. If you saw a couple of those are hypergiants, which are way off on the edge of supergiants. And astronomers have actually subdivided these. There are some other subclassifications that you can use within these. So there's not everything isn't just a one or a two or a three. There are some that are actually in-betweens and different ranges within those. But one way we can determine these by looking at them is by looking at their spectral lines. What lines we see tell us something about what it's made up of. What is the composition? Does it have hydrogen lines? It must have hydrogen. Does it have iron lines? It must have some iron in it. But we can also look about how uh, spread out those lines are. 
And in fact, the, how wide the lines are. The wider the lines are, it tells us that they have a higher pressure. So if you've got a high density in the atmosphere, then the pressure is going to be, going to, going to be a little higher and you're going to get those lines spread out more. When you have a really big star, those massive ones that fill the solar system, those outer layers are very, very low density. And that gives us very, very sharp lines. So if we see sharp, narrow lines from the star, it tells us that it's more likely class 1. If we get really broad lines, it's class 5. In between would be class 3. And yes, in between those you can get 2's and 4's. But again, I really wanted to concentrate on the other ones for this because those are the most prominent. So you can get those. So you can tell something about that by the, how, how the lines are uh, narrow. How narrow the lines are moves you up here. The more narrow lines you get, the further up you are towards the top of this. And you can also look at ionization. How many times atoms have been ionized? Now that depends on the temperature, but it can also depend on the density of particles because if you have lower density, if the particles are really spread out, then once that particle is ionized, it might take longer for it to recombine. There's not as many particles around. There aren't as many electrons around to recombine with it. So if there aren't, then you're going to get a little bit of a difference in the spectrum as well. So between those two, it actually gives us another dimension to the classification. And putting this all together, we can use this to determine what the stars are made up of. So just to kind of summarize this, what we look at is that a couple of things. First of all, if you see absorption lines from a specific element in a star, then it means that that element is present in the star. If I see iron lines, there is iron in the star. We know that. If I see carbon lines, there is carbon. Right, we're going to see hydrogen and helium in them all to some extent. But that will tell us what they, that will tell us something about those. So that will tell us something about the stars, what they're made up of, if we see the lines. However, the absence of lines does not mean the element is not there. Just because we don't see neon lines doesn't mean neon isn't present. Just because we don't see helium lines doesn't mean helium isn't present. Because the only way you see these is you need the correct temperature and the pressure to determine which elements will be able to produce lines. Helium is a good example. The helium lines in the sun are incredibly weak. They're there, but they're really weak. If the sun was further away, we'd have a hard time seeing them. But there's lots of helium in the sun. A quarter of the sun is helium. So why are they not the, some of the brightest lines, darkest lines in the spectrum, some of the most prominent lines? And that's because the temperature is so low. Our sun is only 6,000 degrees. At 6,000 degrees, helium is not excited. So it doesn't give off any lines. If all the electrons stay in the very ground states, then you can't excite them. They can't get up higher. And they don't, it doesn't give off any lines. It doesn't absorb anything or give us any absorption lines. The temperature is way too cold. Other elements are very easily excited. Things like calcium and sodium are very prominent in the sun. And their lines are much brighter, much more, much more prominent than those of helium or even hydrogen. Doesn't mean there's more of those. It just means that you know, the sun is just exciting them perfectly and they're all producing their lines. If you get to a hotter star, 
You can also get to the point where you start to ionize the atoms. You rip the electrons off and now you can't see them anyway. The electrons aren't there for hydrogen. If you get to a really hot star and you rip all the electrons off hydrogen, all of a sudden the hydrogen lines are going to get weak. So they're going to be very prominent right in the middle for hydrogen. If you go to one side they get too cool and you can't excite the hydrogen. If they go to the other side you excite the hydrogen too much and you rip off all of its electrons. So in either of those cases the hydrogen lines are going to be weak or almost invisible. So if the temperatures are not correct to excite those, then you're not going to be able to see those lines. But it doesn't mean the element is not there. Seeing the lines is a definite positive. Yes, you see the lines. They're there. That element is present. However, if you don't see the lines, doesn't mean it isn't present. So if we don't see lines of you know, uranium in the sun, it doesn't mean there's not uranium in the sun. It may mean that the sun is not at the right temperature to excite those atoms. But essentially when we look at the stars, every single one of them has the same composition. All of those stars that we looked at, I went through that whole video with them, 96% plus of the atoms will be hydrogen and helium no matter what star you're looking at. So almost every star is all hydrogen, all helium, and then a bunch of metals. Now to astronomer, a metal is anything that is not hydrogen or helium. So we have hydrogen, we have helium, and we have the metals. So if you look at a periodic table, those first two elements, that's what most of the things are made up of that we're going to look at. Everything else, and it doesn't matter whether we think of it as a metal or not, iron would be a metal, so would oxygen to an astronomer. Anything that is not hydrogen or helium, they're all heavy elements, all metal, all called metals. Anything that is not uh, just hydrogen or helium. So when we look at that, when we look at stars, we look at their metal abundance. How much, what percentage of metals do they have? Some might get up to a couple percent. Some might only have you know, a fraction of a percent. So there's, there are some slight variations, but overall, you, know, you can point at a star and say it's mostly hydrogen and helium. And that applies to any star that we look at. So abundances. How about stars moving, velocities? Well, when we look at velocities, there's two things we need to look at. We can look at, we've talked about the Doppler effect before. Uh, I'm not going to go through that in great detail again, but we can measure the radial velocities of the stars using the Doppler effect. We look at the spectrum, how do the lines shift? If the lines are shifted towards us, then it's moving, it uh, sorry, towards us, then we're, it's moving closer, it's a blue shift. The lines are shifted towards shorter wavelengths. Star might be moving towards us, we might be moving towards the star. I can't tell you the difference. There's no way to tell. Whether we're doing the moving or it's doing the moving or we're both doing the moving. All we can tell is the relative motion of the two. So if it's, if, but, if, but it's getting closer to us if the lines are shifted towards shorter wavelength or towards the blue. If it's moving away or we're moving away from it, the lines are shifted towards longer wavelengths or a redshift. But if you remember, that's only part of the motion. That only tells us how it's moving towards or away from us. And that's only a portion of its motion. Because we can't measure directly its motion along across the sky. We can, but it takes a long time, and that's what we call the proper motion of a star. So if we look at a star, if we watch a star and take its position today and take its position tomorrow, it's pretty much in the same spot. But if you look at it 50, 100 years later, you'll see that stars are slowly moving. It takes a long time to be able to measure it. And this, the picture here gives you kind of an example of that. 
There is a very common grouping of stars that many of you know, right? The Big Dipper. That's what it looks like today. It's not what it's always looked like. The little arrows are telling you how those stars are moving. The five stars here are all part of the same grouping and they're all moving in generally the same direction. So that part of the Dipper remains the same. However, they're all moving this direction. The other two are moving the opposite direction. And that means over time the Big Dipper is changing its shape. Are you going to notice any difference now versus 50 years from now? No. It changes very, very slowly. We could measure it. Actually, astronomers could measure the shifts in that. But it wouldn't be anything that would be noticeable to your eyes. If you go back you know, generations, the Big Dipper looked exactly the same. But if you go back far enough, 50,000 years, this actually goes 50,000 years back, 50,000 years forward, that's what's happening to the Big Dipper. It's slowly, especially this last star, has been moving in closer. This one is moving this direction. So 50,000 years ago, the Big Dipper looked kind of like a deformed spoon, not, a, not, the, not the spoon that it looks like today. 50,000 years from now, the bowl part is stretching out and the handle is kind of getting much more of a hook on it. And that will continue to change. That's just due to the, what we call the proper motions of the stars. That's what we can see. So if I took a picture of the Big Dipper from 100 years ago, take a picture of it now, again, it would look the same. But if you actually measured really accurately those positions, you'd see that the stars are slowly moving relative to each other. So two types of motion. We have the radial velocities towards us or away from us. And we have the proper motion, which if we know the distances can give us how fast they're moving across our line of sight, across the sky. And if we put those two together, then we can actually get the velocity of the star or what we call the space velocity of the star. So if we put those two together, don't worry about the little, all the numbers here. Uh, but the big thing is you want to look at is that we can measure the radial velocity, this part of the velocity, by doing the Doppler effect. I can tell whether that's going away or towards us and how fast. If I measure proper motions, I can get the transverse velocity across, perpendicular to that, which is how it's moving across the sky. If I know the distance, I can get that in angles, but if I know the distance, I can actually get that velocity and how fast it's moving, how many kilometers per second it's moving. So I can measure those two. If you can measure this one and this one, you can add velocities together. They don't add like speeds, you know, 10 miles an hour plus 10 miles an hour. You have to add them as uh, vectors, as uh, arrows. So you'd have to add this one and this one. Actually gives you a space velocity up here. Again, the details of that I don't really want to worry about. But the whole idea is that you can measure how fast that thing is really moving through space in what direction if you can measure those two components. Radial velocity is easy. All you got to do is take a spectrum of the star, measure the shift of its lines, we can get a velocity. Transverse velocity takes time, depending on how fast the star is moving. It might take just a couple decades. It might take 50 or 100 years if it's not moving very much to see it move a significant enough mount, amount to be able to do that. So putting those together does give us the true motion through space. But this is something we couldn't really measure in the past until you had photography. Right, just looking at it and trying to measure the positions, you're not going to be able to measure that accurately enough with your eye. So until we had photograph, photographic plates, which goes back into the late 1800s pretty much, we weren't be wouldn't have been able to get this portion of the velocity. Radial velocity was easier. The other one has been a lot harder. And if it takes 100 years, we're just getting to the point where we're measuring some of these transverse velocities right now to really determine how these stars are moving. 
So that's one way stars can move. The other way stars can move is to rotate. So we can also measure the rotations of the stars. This also uses the Doppler effect. So when all the light comes from the star, if the star is just sitting there and not rotating at all, the light coming from it is not shifted at all. Right? The, star, the star is just sitting there. Material is all coming, light is all coming from us, and you would get no shift and you'd just get a single narrow, relatively narrow line. However, if it's rotating, so if we're looking at it and it's rotating, that means this part is coming towards us, coming towards us blue shifted. So, so the light we look from here is shifted a little bit towards the blue. The light we look at from the other side, it's moving away from us, is shifted a little towards the red. And we can then use that. That's going to mean that the line is going to be spread out a little bit more. What would have been at the center here, now part of that is pushed over towards bluer wavelengths. Part of it is pushed over towards redder wavelengths because the star is rotating. And it gives us a much broader line. So without even measuring it individually, we can just look at the spectrum of a star, make some measurements on how broad or thin those lines are. And you might think we have to understand what type of star it is too because I said you use the same thing to determine what the size of the star is. So if we know one of them, if we know how big the star is first, we can then use that to figure out what's left over, how much of that is left over for the rotation. The faster it rotates, the more that's going to get spread out. So if it's not rotating at all or barely rotating, we'll get nice sharp lines. If it is rotating very quickly, we're going to get broader and broader lines as they get smeared out because this stuff is coming towards us even faster. That means bigger, more of a shift. This stuff is going away from us even faster. Again, more of a shift. So how broad we see those is also going to tell us uh, about the rotation of the star. So again, these are just some of those things that we can now determine. Velocities, how a star is moving. We can learn about sizes just by looking at the light of the star. So. Finishing up here, last time we did the beginning of this when we looked at the uh, OBAFGKM classifications, which was temperatures, so very hot stars on one side, very cool stars on the other. We've now added some new classifications for the brown dwarfs, which are added to this that go on down beyond the edge of the M stars. And we can use that spectrum of a star to tell us about how big it is, its velocity, its composition, and its rotation. So things that we would not be able to learn otherwise. These are things we're learning just from the light of the star. All right, questions? All right, then we can move on to 18. Which again looks at some of this, uh, some of the different properties of a star. So how can we go about determining things like the masses and the sizes of the stars. When we look at them, we actually take like a, a census of the stars. You know, how many stars of each different type there are. The stars we see in the night sky, when you go out and look at the sky at night, those are not typical stars. Those are the unusually bright stars. So they're not typical of stars in general. In fact, none of them fit in this little, these are the stars within 20, uh, 21 light years of the sun. That's relatively close. That's our, you know, our own backyard in terms of astronomical and galactic distances. There are no stars that are really big and bright. There's our sun here in the G class. Within that distance, there's three stars that are brighter than the sun. That's it. So the stars that we see at night, 
Those are unusually bright ones. Those are the big giants, the super giants, and the very, very massive hot stars. Why? Because they're, they're so bright. We can see them if they're 20 light years away or 200 light years away or some 2,000 light years away. They're still visible. If those stars were close, they would be the brightest things in the star. If you took, uh, sky, if you took a really bright star, relatively bright star in the sky, brought it closer to this distance, it would, be, it would dominate the night sky. So it would be brighter than any other star, any other planet that you would see if you took some of these, some of these really bright stars and brought them that close. So when we look at the stars, the stars we see in the night sky are really large, bright stars that we can see even if they're hundreds or thousands of light years away. Our sun is not one of those. Our sun wasn't the biggest star and wasn't the smallest star, but if we took our sun and moved it 30 light years away, it would be one of the faintest stars you could barely see with the naked eye. So you got, it's not going to be one of the bright stars that you see, but one of the real faint ones that's there, especially right around this area where the sky's decently bright. That's about, that's what our sun would be like if it was only 30 light years away. If it was out a little bit further than this, it would not be one of the bright stars in the sky. It's only bright because it's so incredibly close to us. But there are stars that we are seeing that are many times that distance away, that are hundreds and thousands of light years away. So, typically what we do is this is a, probably a better picture of what stars look like in general. Because we're just happening to pick the stars that are within 21 light years of the sun. Doesn't matter, they could be bright, they could be faint. They're the ones that are relatively close to the sun. That's all it means. That's all we're looking at there. We're not just picking the bright ones that we happen to be able to see. And if we count those of these 150, 160 some stars, there's two class A, one class F, seven class G, which is similar to the sun, 17 when we get down to the next class down, Ks, 94 are class M. These are stars that even if they're here, those stars are not ones you're going to go out and see at night. They're not visible. They're there, but they're way too faint for you to be able to see. So even though they are this close, they are incredibly close to us. 21 light years, again, it's, that's right in our backyard. When we talk about our galaxy, we start talking about things that are tens of thousands and up to 100,000 light years away. 21 out of 100,000, that's, that's again right here with us. And we can't see these, that's how faint they are. And there are also some other types of stars that we'll look at. We'll look at the white dwarfs. We've already talked a little bit about the brown dwarfs. The brown dwarfs we're probably also underestimating. There's probably a lot more brown dwarf stars nearby than just 33. They're hard to detect. We see a lot of these, but they're probably the number of brown dwarfs actually exceeds the number of M stars. Because we're still detecting more. These are very faint. So even if they're that close to us, they're hard to see. They don't give off a lot of light. So even at 10 light years away, they're simply almost invisible to us. Uh, they're a lot easier to see and a lot of surveys are done in the infrared. Right? They're cooler temperatures, so most of their light is given off in the infrared, very little in the visible. So infrared surveys are starting to pick up more and more. But I would bet that if you came back to this same table 10 years from now, these numbers aren't going to change much. In fact, these ones I can guarantee you, if there was another O or F, A or F star, we would know about it here. These ones aren't going to change. Maybe there'll be a few more M stars. 
But I'll bet that that would go up significantly, that the number of brown dwarfs would really increase. Because we're still detecting them. They're hard to find because of how, uh, because of how faint they actually are. So again, we're still we're underestimating that. But what it really seems to tell us that the typical star is really a lot smaller than our sun. Our sun, according to this, remember, look, I just gave you that video that showed you how big stars can get. And our sun was way down on the end. But in terms of the stars that actually exist, how, the numbers of them, there are a lot more small stars. A lot of stars that are only a tiny fraction of the sun's size as compared to ones that are bigger. And just in our neighborhood, there's only a handful of stars that are actually bigger and brighter than the sun. So in that, in that case, if you look at it that way, our sun is actually a relatively big, bright star compared to the typical star. If you just randomly pick a star, right, put all the star names in a hat, drag one out, you're most likely going to get a class M star because they overwhelm the numbers of the others in any part of the, uh, of any part of the galaxy. So in that case, our sun is a relatively bright star by comparison, even though it's tiny and faint compared to the biggest and brightest stars. And this is an example of what we call a selection effect. So what it is, is we tend to pick out the bright stars. We can see them even if they're hundreds, thousands of light years away. If we put our sun a thousand light years away, you're never going to see it. You're going to need a good sized telescope to be able to see it. It's not going to be visible with the naked eye long since, right? That was about 30 light years. By the time you get out to about 40 or 50, it's at the complete edge of your vision where you can see it. But we can see stars. Things like the stars in Orion are several hundred light years away. Our sun would be invisible. It would not be that bright. If you went out, if you went to travel around one of those stars and look back towards the sun, right, you'd need a telescope to be able to see our sun. That's how faint it is by comparison. So it's an example of a selection effect that we tend to see things that are brighter. Right? They stand out more. They can be seen over larger distances. So you can see them over a greater distance. If you're further away, they're going to be ones that are still going to be more prominent. But that doesn't mean that they're very common. If they were common, then we'd be finding them close to us. We wouldn't have to look for a thousand light years to be able to find them. We'd be finding them all over the place. So a better example, again, is that these faint stars, these are the most common types of stars in the sky. But they don't dominate our night sky because they're hard to see, even if they're right on top of us. They're almost impossible to see because they're so faint. So even if these stars are within 10, 20 light years, you need a telescope to be able to see them. Uh, some of these stars, the type of stars that we see in, these, see in the sky, these are unusual. The O and B stars, there were none. In, none within 21 light years. There's no O stars or B stars within those. Red giants and supergiants, there aren't any. Even though class M stars and K stars could be giants or supergiants, they're not here. They would be, again, the, some of the brightest things we'd see in the sky. If we look at this, now just to give you a couple of examples, the nearest red giant star is 100 light years away. So there aren't, there's only one of them within like about 100 light years. That's it. They're rare. You might find one every 100 light years or so on the average. But within 20 light years, you're finding 100 of these smaller stars. They're very, very common by comparison. If we look for the O-type stars, if you remember, those are the very hottest stars that you get. 
in the, uh, in the classification scheme, the nearest O star is about 500 light years away. Again, if one of those was close to us, it would be dominant. It would be dominating the night sky. Might not be brighter, have to look up the numbers. Might not be brighter than the full moon, but it would certainly be brighter than any of the planets that we'd see. Brighter than Venus, brighter than Jupiter. It would be that bright if, one of, if you brought one of these stars to within 50 light years. It would be incredibly bright. So, what we want to look at, so that's kind of that's the types of stars that we see. The stars that we see in the sky are really dominated by the big stars, the bright stars, the very rare things. They dominate what we see in the sky. The stars that we actually, that are actually close to us, which is more likely to be typical of the stars that we see, tend to be very small and faint stars. So, some of the other properties that we can measure now are looking at things like the masses. How can we determine the mass of a star? Well, it's really important to know. We want to know how massive a star is. But when we look at a star, all we see is a dot. Doesn't matter how nearby or far away the star is or how big it is. Pretty much every star with a handful of exceptions looks like a, just like a dot in the sky. When you see a, what looks like a disk here, that's just an artifact of the image. It's really just a point. All that light is coming to one point. And that's because, not that the stars don't have size. Most of them, you saw how big some of those stars are. But it's they're so far away. If you take something really far away, no matter how big it is, it still looks like a tiny dot. So the only way we can determine the mass of something is if we have orbiting. So we have something orbiting it. We can then use that to determine the mass of it. We can use that from Kepler's third law. Said a cubed equals p squared. If you can determine a and p, there's a relationship between those. But Newton said there's also a mass factor in there, that it also depends on the mass. So what it turns out is that if you have a binary star, if you have two stars orbiting around each other, which would be what this would be here, that you could then figure out the orbital parameters, how far away they are, what their separation is, how fast they're orbiting. If you can determine those two things, you can then determine the mass. So what I wanted to look here first is some of the different types. We actually have three different types of binary stars. There is a visual binary, which is rare. It's the one I'm picturing here. That's two stars that are close together, but not so close that we can't actually see them and separate them with a telescope. So you can actually look through a telescope. It might look like one star to your eye. But if you put it through a telescope with high enough resolution, you'd be able to see that there are actually two stars there. So you can actually see them. You could watch them over time. You could watch them slowly orbit each other. That could take decades, hundreds of years to actually make an orbit. Because if they're far enough apart that we can see them, they can't be orbiting very fast. They're not real close to each other. But we can do it. It's one of the, if we see them separate, we can definitely see that there's a binary star there. And we can watch one orbiting around this way, one orbiting around this way. We can use that to get estimates of the masses. But it's a very time consuming method because these are not very common in the first place. And the time frames are very, very long. Better is what we call a spectroscopic binary. In this case, we can't see the two stars. So we look at them, it looks like one star. We put a telescope on them, it still looks like one star. So how can we tell it's two? Well, we can take the spectrum of it. And if these stars are orbiting, then you're going to have one star moving towards us while the, uh, 
sorry, one star. Well, we've got our observer here, but at some point this star will be moving away from us. This star will be moving towards us. We can then use the Doppler shift again. If the star is moving towards us, its lines are going to be shifted towards the blue. So at this stage we are right here where we're looking at them going across, you're just going to get one set of lines. Because there's no velocity towards or away from us. A little while later we move up to this one. This one is now moving away. So star B is moving away. Its lines are shifted towards the red. Star A would be here moving towards us. Its lines are shifted towards the blue. You've taken what looked like one line and you've spread it out into two. Because one is blue shifted and one is red shifted. So you can then detect that there are actually two stars there because the lines are going to change with a regular pattern. These ones can orbit fast. If they're really close together, you might find things that orbit in just you know, weeks, days, weeks, months. Not something we have to wait 50 years for them to orbit once or longer. So you could watch those and you could see those lines change in a pattern. They would split apart, they would come back together, and then they would split apart again. And they'd repeat this. This process would repeat over the course of whatever that period is, however long it takes these two to orbit each other. So that's one way that we can, again, the easier way to be able to determine the masses because we can still get estimates of the period from here and if we can get an estimate of how far apart they are based on the measurements, then we can use that to still calculate masses. So even if we can't see them directly, we can still use their spectra to be able to get the masses. One of the best ones for astronomers, spectroscopic binaries are by far the most common. So all you have to do is be able to see two stars, to be able to see the lines from two stars. These could be very far away where you'd never have a chance of being able to see them individually. So visual binaries are rare, spectroscopic binaries are relatively common. The last type to look at is also rare but important because it really helps us to be able to determine masses and that's what we call an eclipsing binary. So an eclipsing binary is an example which would be a spectroscopic but could also be considered a sp partially a spectroscopic binary. But if you look at as it orbits around, it passes right in front of the other star. When one star passes in front of another, it blocks out some of the light. So what would happen is the star here at position one, right, we're getting all the light from this star and all the light from this star. At position two, this big red star is blocking out the light of the smaller blue star. However, the blue star, remember blue star is very hot, very bright, is actually giving off most of the light of the system. So when you block out that light, all of a sudden the brightness dims. So it drops down to where it is at level two. So you go from one where you're seeing both stars down to two where you're only seeing one star. You're only seeing that you're losing the complete light of this one star. It comes out up to level three here. Now you see both stars again. And then at four, now you've got the smaller star blocking the bigger star. Right? It's not big enough to block out all of its light. It can only block out some of the light. So it blocks out a little bit of that light and makes the thing dim again. And this would happen over and over again. So you could measure the period. How long does it take them to go around each other by measuring how long it takes to go from this stage all the way around back to that stage again. It would happen regularly. And this can be ha something that happens within days weeks, they can be relatively short to be able to determine that.
So they're important because they're, again, another easy one to detect. All it takes in this case is that they have to be lined up just right on, an angle, on the right angle. You have to be looking at them almost exactly edge on. And in that case, the, star, the stars will pass in front of each other and allow you to determine, again, those orbital parameters. You can determine the period. You can determine the size of the orbit. And you can then determine the masses. So otherwise, you need something to be able to then get the mass. If you just see a single star out there all by itself with nothing orbiting it, there's no way to be able to determine that mass. And what we can do once we get there, once we find those, we can go back to Kepler's third law, which said that the cube of the semi-major axis is equal to the square of the period of revolution. Gave it to you as a cubed equals p squared. A was just the semi-major axis. P was just the period of revolution. So in this case, I gave it as a. The book uses a d at this point. So d for the distance and p for the period. We can, Newton made a modification to it. Again, to say that there's still the semi-major axis cubed is equal to the period squared, but there's a factor of the mass here. All it really means is if you can determine the semi-major axis, you can determine d. If you can determine the period, you've got p. So if you know those two numbers, then you can get the total mass of the system. Right? Take d cubed, take the semi-major axis, cube it. Take the period, square that, divide the two, and now you have the mass of the system. Not the mass of each individual star. You can't separate that. But you can get the total mass of the system in that case. If one star is much more massive than the other, then it really doesn't make a big difference. So for things like a moon orbiting Jupiter, well, Jupiter's mass is way up here, and the moon's mass is way down through the floor, way down in the Earth in terms of mass. So you're really just measuring the mass of Jupiter. For stars, they might be more comparable, but you can at least get an estimate, and then you can use other things to put limits on what their masses might actually be. So all you have to do is determine those, those two things. So you can measure the, measure the semi-major axis, measure the period, you can calculate the mass. So this is how they, we go about doing it, but it takes a binary star. Or, nowadays, a star with a planet orbiting it. If we can find a planet orbiting the star, we can do the same thing. Measure the period of the planet, measure the semi-major axis of the planet, now we can get the mass of the star. But that's the only way we can do it. If the star is sitting there all by itself, no planets, no other stars around, we can't determine its mass. We can estimate it based on the type of star it is. We can say it's about this much, but we can't actually get a measurement of that. When we look at the masses, we have a pretty big range in terms of the masses. Not quite as big as the diameters. Right? Diameters went from down things that were the size of Jupiter to things that took, what, 1,100 years to circumnavigate in a jet. Well, the stars are not, the sizes are not quite big a range. The largest stars go up to about 100 or a little over 100 solar masses, so about 100 times more massive than our sun. Um, there's a limit here because the, those massive stars produce a lot of energy. That means they're putting out a lot of radiation pressure. The sun is in balance, right? It's radiation pressure pushing it outward is balanced by gravity pulling it down. If you produce enough energy, then the radiation pressure overwhelms gravity and pushes out the outer layers. So the outer layers of these most massive stars are unstable and can get expelled out into space because they're producing so much energy. 
So there's a limit to how big a star can form. You can't form a star that is 500 times the mass of the sun. It will push off enough material to push it underneath, the, underneath about down to this limit. It will push off that much material because of the intense amount of energy that's being produced. So there's a limit. There's an upper limit to how big this is and it's around 100 times the mass of our sun. Theoretical upper limit is actually closer to 300. But that's not a star that's really going to be around now. That's a theoretical star with no metals at all in it. It's just hydrogen and helium. Remember, metals, anything that's not hydrogen or helium. So the amount of metals actually decreased the amount of mass that you could possibly have. So theoretically, you could get up to about 300. But now, after the universe has been around for 14 billion years producing elements, there aren't going to be any stars like this really around anymore. Uh, lower mass stars are about one twelfth of a solar mass. 0.075, I gave you the number before when we talked about brown dwarfs. Below that, it never gets hot enough that it's going to be able to make, take hydrogen and make it into helium. So if it can't do that, it's not a star. It actually becomes what we call a brown dwarf star, not a full-fledged star. You know, a step below that as a brown dwarf star. And likely, these are some of the most common objects in the universe. Very, very low mass, but not able to fuse hydrogen to helium. They don't have really a good, strong energy source to be able to be visible. So they're not visible over very large distances. So compared to the sizes, the range of stellar masses is a lot lower. About 100 upper limit, about one-tenth, just to make round numbers, about 100 to one-tenth of a solar mass. In terms of radius, you can get a lot smaller. You can get down to the size of Jupiter. You can get up to things that are many times, you know, thousands and thousands of times the size of the sun. So there's a bigger range in terms of the size than there is in terms of the mass. Um, diameters. We're going to look at the diameters here as well. I said there's a big, uh, bigger range in those. How can we determine the diameters of stars? Well, even through the most powerful telescopes, Hubble Space Telescope, the big telescope, some of those big ones that we looked at, every star just looks like a point of light. You can't actually see the size. There's a few. Betelgeuse is one example. It's a very large star that's close to us. And if you, if you take a big enough telescope with a high enough resolution, you can see it. You can actually see a disk, an irregular disk shape to it. If you can see that and you know a distance, you can actually measure this. You can actually determine the size. That's really rare. There's a handful of stars where that can be done. For the most part, we have to use indirect methods. So a couple examples of those are a moon, the moon, passing in front of a star. If the moon passes in front of a star, it takes a certain amount of time for the light to fade. Right? The moon has no atmosphere, so it's just a nice solid surface. As it passes in front of the star, the time it takes from it to hit one side of the star to the other side, we can measure. We know how fast the moon is moving, so we can estimate how big that star actually is. Of course, in those cases, it only works for stars in a certain part of the sky, that range where the moon actually moves. You would not be useful for stars very close to, say, the north pole of the sky or the south pole of the sky because the moon never gets out there. So that would be one example. The moon passing in front of a star would be one way to measure it. How long did it take it to that light to disappear? The other one that we can use is binary stars. showed you this image before. But we can also use this to determine uh, the, the size of a star as well. As, this, as it drops down, it doesn't drop down instantaneously. You might be able to tell that this is on an angle a little bit and even more of an angle over here. 
So as this passes in front, you can then use that to determine the size of the star. How long does it take? The longer it takes, then it's going to be a bigger star. So the longer it takes, then we're going to be able to measure that. How long does it take to disappear? How long does it take that light to go from full brightness to the minimal brightness that it's going to reach? The faster it does that, if it was, if it was a point, if the star was just a point, then it would disappear like that. It would be visible. It would not be visible instantaneously. Because the stars do have some size, then we can use that to measure. So this is another way we can use the, This is one other reason eclipsing binaries are important is because we can use them to measure not only the masses of the stars, but the size of the stars as well. Another way we can do that is to use the radiation law. Now, I didn't give you this in any detail before, and I'm not going to ask you to do a calculation on it, but what the radiation law does is it relates the luminosity, the diameter, and the temperature. So if you can measure two of those, you can calculate the third. The other numbers in here are just constants, so those are just little constants. They don't matter for the, cal- for the, for the purposes here. But if you can measure the temperature of a star, that's not too bad to get, right? We can look at the spectral lines. We can measure you know, which atoms it's exciting. We can measure the colors. We can get some idea of the temperature. If we can measure the luminosity, how much energy it's putting out, then I can use that to calculate the size. So again, I'm not making you go through all this. I just wanted to give you that there are several different ways that we can use to calculate the size. So this one requires the moon to pass in front of it. This one requires it to be in a binary star. This one we could then use anywhere. As long as I can measure the luminosity, how much energy that star is putting out, and the temperature, then I can determine what its, uh, what its radius is. So what is the range of these? Well, smallest stars are about the size of Jupiter. The brown dwarf stars, some of them are Jupiter sized. Uh, remember the pressure, there's still a lot more massive, but remember the pressure pushes down even more, so they're actually more compressed than Jupiter. These are the most common stars. Those are the most common things we see in the galaxy. The largest stars, again we looked at those, I mentioned Vy Canis Majoris, would it stand out beyond Jupiter if we placed it in our solar system? So put it where the sun is right now, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and Jupiter are all inside the star. And it goes, it's out there, at the, out there covering a big chunk of the solar system. But there are also giant stars which are in the 10 to 100 times uh, range. There are supergiant stars which are more than 100. And again, these go up to these hypergiants which are the biggest, biggest stars that we see. More than 1,000 times the diameter of our sun. So it's a little bit bigger range than we had for masses. Masses were a little more confined. This is actually a little bit more spread out in terms of the different masses that we get, different sizes that we get for the stars. So finish up this section. Again, we get a wide variety of masses and diameters, but the common ones, the most common stars are the small mass and the small diameter. Uh, we talked, I talked to you about the various methods that we used and the large stars are the ones that we see. They're the common ones. Oh, sorry, are the very common ones to see, but they're very rare. There aren't many of them in the galaxy. But the small stars are the ones that are more common in the universe. So if you went in there and picked a random star out of our galaxy, most likely it's going to be a class M star, much smaller, much less massive than our sun. Just pick some random star out of the hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy. 
If you pick an O type star, you know, you just won the lottery. That's how rare they would be. It would be a, you know, one in a, one in a, bil one in a billion chance to be able to get that type of star. Alright, so now that we know some of the properties, when scientists uh, figure out all the properties or determine different properties of things, the first thing they do is start doing graphs. You know, how do the properties compare? Is there a relationship between the mass and the diameter of a star? Is there a relationship between the mass and the temperature? What if we plot all these different things? And astronomers did this back in the 1900s, early 1900s, uh, Henry Norris Russell and Enyar Hertzsprung actually went through and did this kind of thing. They graphed all sorts of different things, I'm sure, trying to look for patterns in the, sky, in the stars. And one thing that they found was that if they plotted the luminosity, how bright a star was, versus its spectral class or temperature, there was a relationship. So. If there's no relationship, you just get points scattered all over the place. You could have a very hot star that's very faint. You could have a very cool star that's very bright. Or you could have any place in between. You just get stars randomly spread out all over the graph. So astronomers, scientists do that when you find what they call a scatter plot. So everything's just scattered all over the place. You give up and go on to the next thing because there's just showing you that there's no relationship here. But when they plotted these, they found that most of the stars actually fell along what we call a main sequence. They went from the upper left in a kind of curved line down to the lower right-hand side. So they found that there is a temp relationship between the temperature and luminosity of most of the stars. There are a few up here. If we ignore those for right now, the vast majority of stars, about 90% of them that we see, fall along this sequence. There's also a few down here. But those are, those are the odd ones, and we'll come back and look at those. But most of the stars, 90% of them, are falling right along that line. And this is what we now call, in uh, honor of the two uh, astronomers who did it, it's actually called the HR diagram. So for Hertzsprung and Russell, the two who came up with this. And when we do this and we count all the stars that we see, we see that 90% of them are what we call main sequence stars that fall on this line, going from upper left down to the lower right. 90% of the, that, that's where our sun falls. Our sun would be, these are the ones that are the luminosity class, that class 5. All of those here. So 90% of the stars are there. Our sun would be right about, can't quite see it in there, but somewhere right about in there. There it is. There's our sun. So our sun would be right about in there in the yellower section, yellow section. 90% of the stars. So if you pick a random star, right, you've got, you got a 9 in 10 chance that it's going to fall in that part on this, uh, in this part of the HR diagram. That's a pretty good correlation. That's a pretty good relationship that's saying that there is some relationship between how hot a star is and how bright it is. The others are, tend to be very rare. There are white dwarfs here, which are about 10%. That's also a selection effect. They're hard to see. They're very small stars. And they're hard to see unless they're really close to us. So we saw some of them nearby. We can see some that are further away. They're not quite as bad as the, as the brown dwarf stars. But they're, hard, they're also hard to be able to see. There's probably even, might be even more higher percentage of those. And then there's all those stars you see at night. So most stars that you see at night don't fit on the main sequence. Few of them do. Most do not, none of them are white dwarfs. They're all up here in the giants and supergiants range, which is less than a percent of the stars. 
Right? 90% main sequence, 10% white dwarfs, that doesn't leave a whole lot for the rest. It's less than a percent that you would get. But those are the ones that you actually see in the night sky because they're so tremendously bright that they can be seen over large, large distances. So what I wanted to do, look here, is look at plotting, putting together an HR diagram. So what we do when we make this HR diagram, I told you about the spectral class and I told you about the luminosity. But you can actually plot a number of different things here. So on the x-axis, the lower one down here, you can plot the spectral class, but you can also plot anything that measures temperature. You can plot the temperature of the star. And because of the way they set it up, it's one of these things where astronomers are backwards. Right? They set it up to plot the spectral classes O, B, A, F, G, K, M. That means this is hot stars, this is cool stars. So when you plot it, the big numbers go over here and the, small, and the numbers get smaller and smaller as you move to the right. Backwards from how you normally set up a graph. Right? Normally you start with a small number, work your way up to the large one. But that's just an artifact of how things were done with starting with the spectral classes. When you put in temperatures, they're going to end up being backwards. You can also use the color index, which remember is another way of measuring the temperature of a star. It measured how bright it was in the blue filter and how bright it was in the visual or yellow filter. And when you subtract those two magnitudes, it gives you a color index which goes from a small number here to a large number over here. They're all measuring the same. They're all measuring temperature. The spectral class is a measure of temperature. The color index is a measure of temperature. And the temperature is a measure of temperature. So whatever you're plotting down there, it's always a way of measuring temperature. On the other side, you're plotting some way of measuring the luminosity, which can be the luminosity itself or it can be the magnitudes. Now if you're doing the magnitudes, you're also going to start backwards. You're going to be putting big numbers down here. Remember, big numbers, faint stars. So when you're putting the faint stars down here, you're putting the bigger numbers. Remember from our lab last time? And then when you go up here, you're going to get small numbers or very, very bright stars. So when you do those, again, you put, when you put those two together and you start plotting things, you can then put in all the different parts that we see for the main sequence or for the HR diagram. So same graph here, now where is everything? Well, the main sequence runs from the upper left down to the lower right. The giant stars, rarer ones, are up here. The supergiant stars, even rarer, are way up, way up higher, even higher luminosity. Uh, what else did I say? The white dwarfs are down here. Very cool compared, much, much hotter, sorry, much hotter than the sun, but also much fainter. They're very tiny objects that we'll look at. And our sun is right there. And then the last X over here would be where you'd find the largest stars, where the biggest stars that exist would be up in the upper, uh, upper right-hand side. So make sure you print out the slides because this is one I do like to put on tests. I tell you to draw it. Give you a warning right now that, that you'll probably see that on the next test. I will ask you to sketch, sketch this, sketch the axes, put in where the giants, the supergiants, the main sequence, because this is important. We're going to be looking at this over the next couple of, of chapters. So make sure you get your slide, make sure you get the slides or whatever to be able to uh, do that. 
to be able to look at those. I'm not going to necessarily have you put everything, you don't have to necessarily put everything on there and remember all of these, but I want you to know that this is a way of measuring temperature, luminosity, and then where the different parts are because over the coming chapters, right, we're on 18 now, but as we get into the other ones, we're going to use this and how stars change as they go through the HR diagram to be able to look at, to be able to understand what's happening to the stars. Our sun is here right now. It won't always be there. Billions of years from now, the sun will actually move up and will actually be in a giant star phase. After that, it might even get up towards the supergiant phase. It'll end up being a much larger star than it is right now as it goes through its life. So what we really want to look at now is what can we learn? What can we learn from the HR diagram? And we're going to be able to study how things how stars change. And what it does, what it tells us is that over the life of a star, its temperature isn't going to remain the same. Its luminosity isn't going to remain the same. So they're going to slowly change. And if it does, then that, the star will move along the HR diagram. So as we look here, again, another example of the HR diagram, same general uh, parts there. But we can learn, you know, where are we looking at? We look at the main sequence we see a pattern to where the stars are there. The large and massive stars are way up here in the upper left hand side. The small low mass stars are way down here on the right. So just on the main sequence there is a variation in mass. These are, the real, these are those stars that are getting up to a hundred times the mass of the sun way up at the upper end here. These are those typical common stars that are a tenth of the mass of the sun way down on this edge. So we see that there are some patterns there. We will be combining this with models of star formation. How do stars form? How do they end up here? And stellar evolution. Where do stars go in the long run? How do they move over the course of their lives? For the most part, stars sit there on the main sequence for 90% of their life. They don't change a whole lot. They just sit here and very little changes. But at the end of their lives, that we'll study in chapter 22 at the end of this section, stars will change significantly and that's when the sun will end up being up in this section. So what we will see is that temperatures, luminosities will change over the course of a star's life. Our sun's luminosity that it is right now will change. It'll actually get more luminous. Not in the near future. Okay, we're talking billions of years from now. But it will start to get brighter and we would watch if we could evolve the star through and watch things and fast forward, you know, what would the sun look like five billion years, five and a half billion years, we would watch the star slowly move up this up here, meaning that its luminosity is going to be increasing and its temperature is going to decrease. So it's going to become one of these very bright giant stars. And again, that's some of the stuff we're going to come back and look at over the course of the next few chapters. When we look at some of the extremes that we get here, the smaller stars, we can, have, we can look at various extremes. This is another example of an HR diagram. This one shows magnitudes and the color index as just another example to look at that. But the smallest stars are way down here in this corner. Those would be the incredibly tiny stars. They're very faint, but they're extremely hot. Remember, these are the highest temperature stars. So really hot, but really faint. So they've got to be, in order for them to be real hot, but not be putting out a lot of light, they've got to be real tiny. 
These white dwarf stars down here are about the size of the Earth. Mass of the Sun, size of the Earth. So they've got a lot of mass in them, but they're compressed down to such a small size that they're not going to be very bright. They're going to be very faint because there just isn't a lot of surface area. They don't have a lot of surface area to put out the brightness that a much larger star would be. The largest stars, stars, stars increase. The, ma- the size of the star will increase as you go diagonally from the lower left up to the upper right. These are going to be the most massive stars. These class ones way up here with the supergiants which go across. Those are going to be the very ma- most, most uh, very brightest stars, very largest stars. They are very cool, much cooler than the sun, but they're incredibly bright. They've got to be tremendous in size. This is where Vy Canis Majoris sits, way up in the upper corner up here. Because it is so tremendous, even though it's not, each little bit of it is not giving out as much light as the sun, when you have something that fits out to Jupiter, and you imagine that as a big giant sphere compared to our sun's, you know, a little tiny pebble by comparison, even though each little section, each little square meter of its surface isn't giving off as much light, it's got a lot more square meters, so overall it's going to be incredibly bright. It's giving off a lot of energy and would be some of the largest and then one of the brighter objects that you could see in the sky. So there's a relationship between diameters of the stars. Very small stars, diagonally, very large stars. There's also a relationship in masses, but this only works along the main sequence. You can't compare the masses of stars up here to masses of stars on the main sequence. There's no relationship between them. But along the main sequence, we do see that the most massive stars are up here in the upper left, and the low mass stars are in the lower right. So if you calculated masses, you'd find the 100 solar mass stars up here, the tenth of the solar mass stars down here. In terms of density, they kind of match the diameters. So you go from white dwarf stars down here, which are really high densities, mass of the sun, size of the earth. You had to crush that stuff really down tight to squeeze something, all that material that's in the sun down to the size of the earth. So those are incredibly dense, and in fact, you know, take a little teaspoon, not the teaspoon itself, but just a teaspoonful of that material, it'd be 50 tons. That's how compressed the material is. They've essentially squeezed out all of the space that exists between the atoms in ordinary matter. Right? We're mostly empty space. There's a lot of space in between the atoms in our body. If you got rid of all that space in something like the sun, you'd compress it down to the size of the earth. You can imagine how small you'd get compressed if you compressed all the space out of you. There'd be not much left there in terms of size. So we're mostly empty space. The sun is mostly empty space. If you get rid of that, you know, a teaspoon of material would be 50 tons worth. Well, I'm not 50 tons, so I'd fill a lot less than a teaspoon, if you think about that. I mean, that's, how, that's how, much, how much empty space there is in everything. So these things are incredibly dense. And those, we'll talk about them later, but they aren't even the densest objects that we'll look at. There are even more dense objects we'll look at. The least dense would be up here in the upper right-hand side. Very, very large, but very low-density objects. All right, so finishing up here, again, the big thing that we looked at here and that I want you to get is the HR diagram. So HR diagram shows how the luminosity and the temperature are related, that there is a relationship between those. 
in terms of you see the main sequence, you see the giant stars, you see the super giant stars, and what we're going to want to look at is how stars change as they go through those. Most of their life is spent on the main sequence, but their position will change. This doesn't mean that the star is doing anything. It's not moving. It's not uh, doing anything else that it ordinarily wasn't doing. But it means that as it ages, as it ages, its temperature changes, its luminosity changes, and that means that its position on the HR diagram will change. If you increase a star's temperature, it's going to move to the left. If you decrease its temperature, it's going to move to the right. If you increase its luminosity, it moves up. If you decrease its luminosity, it moves down. So you can use that then to be able to determine, and we can you will use that over the coming chapters to really study how stars change. Questions? Yes. So is Canis Majoris' lifespan coming to an end? Or? It is probably getting towards the very end of its life. However, for us, that doesn't mean it's going to be gone in you know our lifetimes, because for a star, that could still mean you know hundreds of thousands of years even. But it's probably getting very close to the end. Others? Right. Otherwise, we'll get started on, be able to get started on 19 here. Won't get through all of it, but at least we can get started and we'll finish this up on Thursday before lab. So 19 really looks at distances. This whole chapter 19 is talking about distances. So uh, we're going to look first at parallax as one example, but we're going to look at some of the other methods that we use to determine distance. Like mass, like diameter, they're not easy things to determine. Figuring out how far away something is is not something that's easy to do astronomically. So it's a very difficult thing and what we want to do is you know how can we get measurements of how far away things are and we're going to want to look at that. How far away are the stars? I've been telling you, oh this star, some stars are a hundred or a thousand light years away. Well how do we know? We can't travel that far. Right, we can't go take a trip out there in our spacecraft and check the odometer when we come back and see how far we traveled. So we have to use other methods to be able to do that. So starting in close to us, we can actually use things like radar. This doesn't work any place outside of the inner part of the solar system. But you could send radar waves to Venus and bounce them off Venus. You could bounce radar waves off of Mars and you could then use that to determine distances. And I explained that a little bit here, but radar waves are light waves, they're radio waves, they travel at the speed of light. So we know that they travel 300,000 kilometers per second. So if we send a signal out and it comes back a second later, then we know that that object is 150,000 kilometers away. Had to go there and come back, so it's only half that distance away, right? It traveled, traveled 300,000 kilometers, it traveled 150 then it traveled 150 back. So it traveled 300,000 kilometers in a second and that means that the object is going to be half that distance away. So we always have to take into account that it's when we send a signal out there, we send a signal out to Mars, it hits Mars and it has to travel two ways for us to get it back. We have no way of measuring when it got to Mars. Right? Unless you have a detector there and you send a signal to Mars to some detector there. But normally you just bounce the signal off the solid surface and it bounces back to you. So it's like using you know, sonar or anything else in the oceans. You send a ra in that case, you send actual sound waves down, bounce off something, and they come back. And you can use that to determine distances. But this is all you have to do. So how long does it take? So we know the velocity. We know the time. We know the time. Cut it in half because you had to get the signal there and come back. 
And then you can use that. Vol distance equals velocity times the time. We know the velocity. We know how many seconds it takes. We measure how many seconds it takes that signal to come back. And we can then determine the distances. Works really well. Moon we could do great with. We can do Venus. We can do Mars. Mercury gets a little close to the sun. It gets a little tough, but it could, could technically be done. Once you get much further than that, it doesn't work. And it's just that you, how powerful of a radar signal can you send out? Because the signal spread out as you go further and further out into space. So what you send is a really strong signal here at Earth. By the time it gets out to some moon in the outer solar system is almost nothing. And then it reflects off there and comes back and spreads out again. What you get back is a very tiny fraction of what you send out. So it works for things that are relatively close to us. So it doesn't help us with determining the distance to a star. Even if we could send the signal out there, time would be too long. Suppose we could send a signal to Alpha Centauri. Send a radar signal off there and bounce it back. Alpha Centauri is four and a half light years away. Okay? Even if we don't know, that's what we know. But we send a signal out there today, right? in 2018, it's going to take it four years to get there, 2022, beginning of 2023. Then it's got to take four and a half years to get back. So you're talking 2027 or so, mid-2027 to get a signal back. You know, a long time. So even if you could, the, the signal would fade too far by that. You'd never be able to get a signal return anyway. But you'd be talking eight and a half years for the closest star. So this works within our solar system, but we need something else for other stars. And what we use is what we call the parallax. Now parallax is a shift in point of view because the observer is moving. So it's the change in the apparent position of an object due to a change in the position of an observer. I can use this in the classroom. Right? If I measure where I am and I'm standing on one side, I look at students in the front row of tables as compared to students in the back row of the tables. If I move across, Okay, some of you in the back didn't change your position very much relative to the back wall, a little bit. Those in the front changed drastically. Right? You might have been against one wall, now you're against the other wall because I changed my position. Well, the Earth is doing this all the time. We're orbiting around the sun. So sometimes we're on one side of the sun, sometimes we're on the other. We're 93 million miles away from the sun. That means as compared to now in October, we're 93 million miles away from the sun on this side. Six months from now in April, we'll be 90, 93 million miles on this side. That's a lot. You know, add those two together, what, 186 million miles apart from our position here to our position here. So we've changed. Our position has changed. And we're essentially moving from here to here. And that's going to change the position of a nearby object relative to a more distant object. At viewpoint A, if you look at this star, it's going to be against the blue background with this object. Viewpoint B, you're going to see this, your object here against the red background. So if you can measure that, and you can measure this distance, how far apart you moved, and then you measure the angular shift, you can then determine the distance, how far away something is. We use that for triangulation here on Earth. You can measure two baselines across a river, and you can figure out how far you know, a large object is, a tree or something on the other side. You can figure out how far away it is. You just measure position from here, measure a position from here, measure how much its angle has changed. You can use that then to determine the distance. So this is a, like, like the radar, this is a direct way to measure the distance. The problem with it is, 
is that all these stars are so far away. It would be like me moving across the front of the room, but everybody else, well, let's see, which way are we heading? You know, being you know, half a mile down the road that way. You're not going to switch positions very much, me just moving this little bit. So even though we're moving a larger distance, when we do it, here's the sun, the Earth's motion around the sun. So here's the Earth moving around. That angle, this parallax angle, which is what we're trying to measure, is incredibly tiny. So it's a little over. Okay, that's the way they measure the angle. Never mind. Um, it's, it's about an arc second. So parallax, in terms of what we knew about it, the Greeks knew about it. I think I mentioned this. I mentioned parallax way, way back. But they knew it. It was one of, the, one of their pieces of evidence that said the Earth didn't move. Because if it moved, then parallax should exist. And we should see stars shifting their positions. And we didn't. The problem was they just didn't comprehend the true distances, how far away things really were. It wasn't until the 1830s that we could actually measure the first parallax. And in this case, it was a parallax of 0.3 arc seconds. Remember the angles? I know I went over angles like way back. Arc second, you take degrees, right? One degree, the moon's about half a degree. You divide that into 60 arc minutes. So divide the full moon into, into, into 30 pieces. Each of those would be one arc minute. Take each of those 30ths of the moon and divide them into 60 pieces. That would be one arc second. So the moon is about 1,800 arc seconds across. We're measuring less than 1 1,000. Well, one, this is three times that. That would be about 1 5,000th the diameter of the full moon. No wonder we couldn't measure it. The Greeks couldn't measure that size with that, that amount without a telescope. Even, even some of the astronomers could not measure that. It took much bigger telescopes to be able to get that. The largest parallax that we get is just a little over, and that's the full angle. That's not actually the parallax angle. I think I have, the, I have to double check that number because it actually should be less than one arc second. But it has to do with the way astronomers define the parallax angle. But the, the largest one, close enough to one arc second that the, number, the exact number doesn't matter. But it's about one arc second, about one two thousandth the diameter of the full moon. That's for the closest stars. We can measure that angle pretty accurately. We could measure you know, even smaller back in the 1800s. But it means that it's very difficult to get these measurements. If we look at just the nearby stars, for example, you know, most of these, well, first of all, what do I mean? Let me give a definition here. Um, if we look at just the nearby stars, these are some of the nearest stars to the sun, those within about 15 light years. Again, most of those, I know you can't see the names from there, but most of them you won't be able to recognize. There's only a handful of those that actually are stars that you can see in the sky. And I wanted to give you the definition up here, a parsec, is the distance at which a star will have a parallax of one arc second. This is where a parsec comes from. It's a parallax, the first part of parallax, and then arc second. So the parallax of one arc second. One parsec is about three light years. So that means that there is no star with a parallax of one arc second or more. Because we don't have a star within one parsec within, one, within three and a quarter light years. So, except for the sun. Right, we do have our sun, which is in, within one parsec. The nearest star is about four and a half light years from the Earth. 
But there are dozens of stars within 15 light years. So when you get out there, there's actually a lot of stars there. But except for things like uh, Alpha Centauri, one that people tend to hear of, that's the closest star. Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. That's about it. That's about all that you're going to get of all these stars that you're, things you're actually going to rec- you might recognize. There's only a handful of them that can be visible to the naked eye. Most of the rest of them are invisible. They're those small, very low mass stars that we simply cannot see. So parallax, while very important, even at these distances we're getting out to 15 light years. That's about five parsecs. So that would be one-fifth of an arc second. Now you're measuring you know, one-fifth. That's less than the original one. They're getting down to about two-tenths of an arc second in terms of measuring. There are some stars that we can measure, but they get really, really hard. As you get to distances further away than this, you start talking about tenths of an arc second, hundredths of an arc second, thousandths of an arc second. That's an incredibly tiny angle to be able to measure these shifts. So it takes extremely precise measurements which are not done from the ground. They're actually done from space. And there have been two craft that are up there that have worked on this project. Hipparchos was the first one, uh, back in, launched in 19, late 1980s. It was able to get out to 300 light years, or about 100 parsecs. So that's about 1 one-hundredth of an arc second. That's an incredibly tiny angle. But it was able to get that much. And I apologize that my link doesn't come out there. If you want to look at that, you can actually explore this on the, la- on the later one. You can actually pull up the slides. You can get that. Uh, but it was a big improvement over what we could do. It's given us a great mapping of you know, the local part, the, the nearest 300 light years of our galaxy. Our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. So 300 light years is not our backyard anymore, but our neighborhood. We're still in a very, very small section of that. Uh, Gaia, the more recent one in 2013, is working on getting things out to 30,000 light years. 100,000 light years, 30,000. Now you're getting a big chunk. You're still not getting the whole galaxy, but you're getting a big chunk of the galaxy. So you're now able to study a lot more of that. And it's measuring you know, millions of stars. It's going to be able to measure about 7.5 million stars. And you can actually do three-dimensional maps. And if you say, I know you can't read the link here, but if you go get those slides off of the off of D2L, there's a thing that you can download and you can actually play around with the data. And you know, look at three-dimensional maps of what it's, what it's determined. So it's one of the things you can actually look at. So we're now expanding this out uh, quite further. And it's important because this is, you know, ignore what we could do with radar because it only works in our solar system. This is a big chunk of what we're able to do for determining distances. And this is our first step. It's still not going to help us for galaxies. We're still going to need other things when we get further out. But this is our first step. And we're going to be looking at the other ones uh, next time. So put my summary up here. We'll finish up with this. And then we'll pick up with the last two sections on Thursday. But radar measurements work really well for the solar system. Parallax is what we use for the nearby stars in our galaxy. So it's a shift between the objects when you're measuring from two viewpoints. And the space observatories have really given us are really pushing this up to millions of stars now. Instead of just dozens and then hundreds or thousands of stars, now we're getting up to millions of stars and getting a really good three-dimensional map of our galaxy. And what I'll look at on Thursday before the lab is I'll go through the others and some of our other uh, methods of determining distances to these stars. All right, questions?
Otherwise, I'll see you on Thursday.